I'm Helena Cronin. I'm a co-director of LSE's Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. A big welcome to all of you. Before we begin our programme, I'd really like to apologise for and also explain the inconvenience caused by the switch of venues this evening and the bags, the absence of bags. Uh, we received information from the police and other sources regarding plans to disrupt this event and attempt to prevent Professor Pinker from speaking because of his involvement in the new College of Humanities. We were therefore obliged to take this action to uphold our responsibilities regarding free speech, both for the speaker and for the audience. Now, there are clearly strong feelings about the new College of Humanities, and of course, anyone has the right to disagree with Professor Pinker's actions and opinions. However, Professor Pinker is not here tonight to talk about that. He's here to talk about his new book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And the majority of the audience are here to listen to him talk about that very topic. And what's more, the new college is an external association and it's entirely, un entirely unrelated to LSE. Therefore, this is not the appropriate forum for that topic. However, Professor Pinker will be taking questions after his lecture and he's very kindly agreed to answer one question on this topic if it does arise. <laughs> and now, we owe apologies too to our speaker um, and also a very warm welcome to Professor Stephen Pinker. Steve, it really is a huge pleasure to have you here and uh, I hope you still feel the same about us after all of this. <laughs> Um, Steve's day job is as a world expert on the past tense of irregular verbs. <coughs> and he's also a distinguished psychologist in, of language and cognition. And that is the very solid scientific foundation that underpins his glittering reputation as a very beguiling writer, a writer of deep insight and scientific integrity and of limpid witty prose. His books really enlighten and delight, even when he's talking about the past tense of irregular verbs. Um, read his book, Words and Rules. I readed it and was, <laughs> and was enlightened and delightened. My sole complaint about his famous five books is only five? Well, well. Uh, here is his repost to that, <laughs> a weighty repost. Um, it's what we're celebrating tonight, the better angels of our nature. It's especially appropriate to launch this innovative book at LSE because it's a shining model for students of social science. Steve tackles a topic that is very widely regarded as highly contentious. Contentious, but it's never been brought systematically within the orbit of science. His approach combines industrial strength statistics with a very rich understanding of human nature that only Darwinian theory can yield. And in that way, it is a window onto the social sciences of the future. It also provides a framework for policy. How does it do that? Because it demonstrates how our unchanging, our fixed unchanging human nature gives rise to different behavior in response to different circumstances. And so, change the environment and you can change the behavior. Above all, of course, it can help us to discover which environments bring out the very best of our nature. And so it answers the policymaker's eternal question where did it all go right? The program for this evening is as follows. Steve will talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll take questions from you, which I'm afraid will be a bit curtailed because um, we're rather late starting, and we'll finish by about 7.45 p.m. After that, Steve will sign copies of his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, The Decline of Violence in World History and Its Causes, and that's also the title of his lecture, which Steve, I'll now invite you to deliver.
Believe it or not, <clears throat> and I know most people do not, violence has been in decline for long stretches of time, and we may be living in the most peaceful era in our species' existence. The decline of violence has not been steady, it has not brought violence down to zero, and it is not guaranteed to continue. But I hope to persuade you that it is a persistent historical development, <clears throat> visible on scales from millennia to years, from wars and genocides to the spanking of children and the treatment of animals. I'm going to walk you through six major historical declines of violence, try to identify their immediate causes in terms of particular historical events of the era, and then try to tie them together in terms of their ultimate causes, namely general historical forces interacting with human nature. The first major decline of violence I call the pacification process. Until 5,000 years ago, humans everywhere lived in anarchy without central government. What was life like in this state of nature? This is a question that thinkers have speculated on for centuries. Thomas Hobbes famously opined that in a state of nature, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A century later, Jean-Jacques Rousseau countered that nothing could be more gentle than him in his uh, primitive state. Now, these two gentlemen were talking through their hats. Neither of them had any idea what life was like in a state of nature. But today, we can do better because there are two sources of evidence on rates of violence in non-state societies. The first is forensic archaeology. I don't know if in uh, Britain you're familiar with the, the CSI series of television programs we have in the United States, uh, but you can think of this as CSI Paleolithic. <laughs> Namely, what proportion of prehistoric skeletons have signs of violent trauma, such as bashed-in skulls, decapitations, arrowheads embedded in bones, or mummies found with ropes around their necks. Uh, I've assembled here 21 estimates, and they span uh, quite a range, but they average out to 15%. Uh, that is, 15% of the deaths were violent deaths, and we can compare that rate to those of the uh, 20th and 21st century. The uh, percentage of war deaths for the United States and Europe in the 20th century, a century of course, uh, marred by two world wars, was two-thirds of a percentage point. The world is a 20th century, <clears throat> throwing in all of the deaths from genocides and uh, man-made famines, comes up to 3%. And the world in the year 2005 is represented by a bar that's le less than one pixel high. The rate is three one-hundredths of a percentage point. The second source of evidence on violence in non-state societies comes from ethnographic vital statistics. The wave of uh, agriculture and uh, government that spread outward from six or so original uh, origins several thousand years ago left a few pockets of the earth <coughs> uh, to persist in a state of anarchy. Ethnographers who have lived with them for long stretches of time have recorded the causes of death and tabulated them. <clears throat> and so we can ask, what is the rate of death by violence in people who have recently lived outside of state control, such as hunter-gatherers and hunter-horticulturalists? Uh, I've assembled 27 estimates, and again, they span quite a range, but their, their average is 524 violent deaths per 100,000 per year. That is, one half of a percent uh, of the population is killed violently every year. Well, I'll compare that to the comparable figures for modern states. And this time, I'll stack the deck against modernity by picking the worst states in their worst periods. <clears throat> such as Germany in the 20th century with two world wars, which comes out at about 160. Russia in the 20th century, two world wars and a uh, civil war at 150. Japan in the 20th century, a world war that ended in two nuclear strikes with about uh, 30. The United States in the 20th century, two world wars and at least six foreign wars uh, at a figure of less than four per 100,000 per year. Here's the world in the 20th century, including all of the indirect deaths from war through starvation and famine, the man-made famines and the genocides, and it comes out to 60 per 100,000 per year. And here's the world in the year 2005, 
the bar, once again, is invisible, less than a pixel high. The rate is three-tenths of a violent death per 100,000 per year. The immediate cause was the rise and expansion of states themselves, leading to the various paxes that students of history read about, the pieces imposed by the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, Pax Islamica, Pax Hispanica, and so on. When uh, empires and kingdoms exert control over a territory, they tend to try to stamp out tribal raiding and feuding, not because they have a benevolent interest in the welfare of their citizens, but because uh, tribal raiding and feuding is a nuisance to imperial overlords who would just as soon keep the people alive to supply them with soldiers and slaves and taxes. So just as a farmer has an interest in preventing his livestock from killing each other because it's a dead loss to him, so the early kings and emperors tried to get rid of uh, internecine violence that just settled scores among the people or shuffled resources around them at a loss to the emperor. The second historical decline of violence can be illustrated by this woodcut showing a day in the life in the Middle Ages. And the process that uh, brought this kind of activity under control has been called the civilizing process, for reasons I'll explain. Homicide records in uh, many parts of England go back uh, hundreds of years, and the historical criminologist Manuel Eisner has plotted them. I've replotted his data here on a logarithmic scale. They stretch from the year 1200 to the year 2000, and I've plotted the homicide rate uh, in um, homicides per 100,000 per year on a logarithmic scale. So this is a tenth of a homicide per 100,000 per year, uh, 1, 10, and 100. Uh, and as you can see, there has been a massive decline in the rate of homicide over the ages, uh, so that a contemporary Englishman has 1 35th the chance of being murdered uh, as his medieval ancestor. This is true not just in England, but in every European country for which statistics have been uh, gathered. Here we have, we see Italy, the Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland, and Scandinavia. Here is the uh, average of those five regions, and for the point of comparison, I've put the average for the non-state societies up here, 524 per 100,000 per year. This gap is more or less what I've been calling the pacification process. This further decline can be called the civilizing process. Uh, I took the name from the classic book by the German sociologist Norbert Elias, who argued that in the transition from Middle Ages to modernity, there was a consolidation of central states and kingdoms out of the medieval patchwork of duchies and principalities and uh, baronies. With it, criminal justice was nationalized, and the constant feuding of the warlords of the era, who we call them knights, uh, was replaced by the king's justice. Also over this span of time, there was a growing infrastructure of commerce institutions of money and finance that could be recognized within the boundaries of the newly consolidated states, and technological improvements in transportation, better roads, better carts, and in timekeeping. As a result, zero-sum plunder gave way to positive-sum trade, a point that I'll return to later in the talk. The third historical decline of violence can be appreciated by considering some of the ways that the early authorities maintained peace within their kingdoms and empires. Punishments such as breaking on the wheel, burning at the stake, clawing, sawing in half, and impalement. But in a process that historians have called the humanitarian revolution, the use of torture as a form of criminal punishment was abolished. The abolitions <clears throat> were concentrated in the 18th century, particularly the second half. This is a timeline of when 16 major countries abolished uh, judicial torture, including the United States with its famous prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. Also abolished during this time was the profligate application of the death penalty for non-lethal crimes. In 18th century England, there were 222 capital offenses on the books, including poaching, counterfeiting, robbing a rabbit warren, being in the company of gypsies, and strong evidence of malice in a child 7 to 14 years of age. <laughs> now these uh, capital uh, crimes were not just written down on the books, but the death penalty was exuberantly applied. Samuel Johnson writes of a seven-year-old girl who was hanged for stealing a petticoat. But by 1861, the number of capital crimes had been reduced to four. Uh, 
Likewise, in the United States in the 17th and 18th centuries, the death penalty was prescribed and, and uh, applied for theft, sodomy, bestiality, adultery, witchcraft, concealing birth, slave revolt, and counterfeiting. Here we have a graph showing the percentage of American executions for crimes other than murder from 1650 to the present. As you can see, in the colonial and uh, early federal period, a majority of the executions were for crimes other than murder. In recent years, the only uh, crime other than murder that has been punished by death is conspiracy to commit murder. The death penalty itself, of course, has been abolished in just about every Western country. Here we have a timeline from 1775 to the present of the number of European countries with capital punishment. Most of the abolitions took place in the last 75 years or so, but well before European countries struck capital punishment from the books, they had lost their taste for applying them. And the blue line shows the number of European countries that actually carried out executions. The decline began uh, much sooner. Uh, on average, 50 years elapsed between the last execution that was carried out and the time at which capital punishment was uh, taken off the law books. The United States, of course, is a notorious exception to this trend, or at least 34 of our 50 states are exceptions because it has been abolished in 16 of them, five of them just in the last uh, decade. But even in the United States, the death penalty is a shadow of its former self. <clears throat> Here we have a graph from 1625 to the present showing the uh, number of American executions per capita. And as you can see, there has been a precipitous decline uh, for all its notoriety, in recent years, the United States has executed about 45 people a year in a country that has almost 17,000 homicides per year. Also abolished during the humanitarian revolution were witch hunts, religious persecution, such as the burning of heretics, dueling, blood sports, debtors prisons, and perhaps most famously, slavery. Slavery used to be legal in uh, every part of the world. No one seemed to think that there was anything particularly wrong with slavery <clears throat> until the uh, 18th century in which a wave of abolitions was, uh, was unleashed, which eventually covered the entire world. Uh, some parts of the world came late to this revolution. The last country to have abolished slavery was Mauritania in 1980. Uh, nonetheless, we are living in a period of history that for the first time, uh, slavery is illegal everywhere on the globe. What were the immediate causes of the humanitarian revolution? One might guess that affluence was the cause, perhaps as One's own life becomes longer and more pleasant. One puts a higher value on life, and by extension, a higher value on the lives of others. Unfortunately, the timing doesn't work. Uh, if you plot per capita income in England from 1,200 to 2,000, you see that the increase really only began with the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. And in the 18th century, when these reforms were concentrated, uh, overall wealth was barely higher than what it was in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> uh, a more likely answer is printing and literacy. The printing was the book production, I'm sorry, was the only industry in England to have shown an increase in productivity prior to the Industrial Revolution. This graph from 1500 to 1850 shows that there was a 25-fold increase in the efficiency of producing books. It was put into practice so that in the 18th century, there was an exponentially increasing rate of publishing books per decade, a, a kind of early application of Moore's Law. And there were more people who could read them. In the 18th century, for the first time, a majority of Englishmen were literate. Why should literacy matter? Well, this era is also called the Enlightenment because thanks to widespread literacy and the dissemination of knowledge, um, knowledge replaced superstition and ignorance. If enough people are disabused of notions such as that Jews poison wells, heretics go to hell, witches cause crop failures, children are possessed by the devil, Africans are brutish, uh, and other forms of uh, nonsense, then it will undermine many rationales for violence. As Voltaire said during this era, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Also, literacy is a technology of cosmopolitanism, of elevating people out of their parochial stations and exposing them to uh, other ideas and people. And it's not implausible <clears throat> that the reading of fiction, history, and uh, journalism could lead people to uh, inhabit other people's minds, to imagine what life is like 
uh, for other people. And it's conceivable that if you're in the habit of imagining what it's like to be other people, you would take less pleasure in seeing them disemboweled, uh, a point that I'll return to later. Uh, that is more uh, that literacy could have expanded empathy and hence decreased cruelty. The fourth historical decline, uh, called the Long Peace, speaks to the frequently made assertion that the 20th century was the most violent in history. Unfortunately, no one who uh, repeats this cliche ever cites any numbers from any century other than the 20th. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's not so clear that the 20th was the most violent. If we even take the supposedly peaceful 19th century, uh, we see that though it's true that there were two spans of several decades in which Europe uh, experienced a, a, a respite from major war, if you expand your gaze to the century as a whole and to the world as a whole, you see that it's uh, dubious whether the 19th century could really be called uh, that much more peaceful than the 20th. The century began with the Napoleonic Wars, one of Europe's most destructive wars with four million deaths. The most destructive civil war in history, the Taiping Rebellion in China with 20 million deaths. The most destructive war in American history, the American Civil War with 650,000. The conquests of Shaka Zulu in southern Africa with one to two million deaths. I don't want to leave any continent out, so here's one from South America, namely the uh, proportionally most destructive interstate war in history, the War of the Triple Alliance, which killed 60% of the population of Paraguay, and then African slave raiding wars and imperial wars in Africa, Asia, and the South Pacific, whose death tolls we can't even begin to estimate. Also, though it's undoubtedly true that World War II was the deadliest event in human history in terms of how many people it killed, there were a lot more people around in the 20th century than in any previous century. And it's not so clear that it was the deadliest event in terms of the proportion of the population that was killed. I'm going to, uh, going to show, show you a uh, plot of the 100 worst things that people have ever done to one another that we know of, uh, taken from a compilation by a man who calls himself an atrocitologist, Matthew White. Uh, his book, called Atrocitology should be released in the UK pretty soon. Anyway, I've taken his figures and I've simply divided them by the population of the world at the time and plotted them on a logarithmic scale from uh, 500 BCE to the present. Uh, what this graph shows us is that uh, as far as atrocities are concerned, World War II only comes in at ninth place and World War I doesn't even make the top 10. And history's worst atrocities are pretty evenly sprinkled over 2,500 years of human history. Now there is a, uh, the, the data cloud, as you can see, funnels down as you get closer to the present, but presumably this does not mean that in ancient times they only committed really big atrocities, and more recently we've also been committing medium-sized and small-sized ones. It's uh, instead a reflection of the historical record, which, not surprisingly, gets more complete the closer you get to the present. So let's zoom in now on the last 500 years when we can plot some trends. The trends I plot will come from a data set by Jack Levy on great power war. These are wars that involve the 800-pound guerrillas of the day, the small number of countries that can project military force beyond their own uh, borders, and which are responsible for the majority of deaths from all wars of all, ca all causes. This graph shows the percentage of years that the great powers fought each other over the last 500 years. And as you can see, a few centuries ago, the great powers always fought each other. That's what great powers did. In more recent uh, quarter centuries, they hardly ever fought each other. This graph shows the duration of wars involving a great power over the last half millennium. And again, the trend is downward. Uh, in past centuries, they had things like the 30 years war, the 80 years war, the 100 years war. The 20th century was the century of the six day war. Here we have the frequency of wars involving uh, a great power, and those too uh, are in decline. That is, fewer and fewer wars are started per year. Uh, however, here is a trend that goes in the opposite direction. That is, once a war does begin, uh, how many people does it kill per country per year? And here we see that because of advances in uh, military organization and technology, there was quite an increase in how much damage a war caused uh, once it began. 
Although note that after 1950, even that trend did a U-turn. And so we're living in a period of history where for the first time, both the, uh, the frequency and the duration and the deadliness of wars have all been in decline. If you put those three trends together and simply tot up the total number of deaths from all wars involving a great power, it forms a, an unruly zigzag. But here we are in the last quarter of the 20th century with a record low point of the number of uh, people killed in wars involving a great power. If we zoom in on the 20th century in the first decade of the 21st, uh, where once again the data gets still more fine-grained, uh, we see a rate of death in wars of uh, worldwide, uh, of wars of all sizes, that shows that indeed there were two bloodbaths in the 20th century, but they did not form an escalating sequence or represent a trend, but something closer to a last gasp. And since 1945, the, uh, there's been a hugging of the floor, and the rates in, of death in warfare are unusually low by historical standards. This has been called the long peace, the historically unprecedented decline in interstate war since 1946. There were zero wars between the United States and the Soviet Union, confounding all expert predictions that a uh, war between the superpowers was inevitable. No nuclear weapon has been used since Nagasaki, again, again contra contradicting every prediction that many of us in this room grew up with, that thermonuclear war was inevitable. There have been no wars between the great powers since the end of the Korean War in 1953. No wars between Western European countries. And I sometimes have to uh, remind uh, uh, younger people in the audience that this really is not as boring as it sounds. I mean, you might think, well, sure, who would ever expect you know, France and Germany to go to war? Uh, but needless to say, this is a historically unusual state of affairs. And I can put a number on it that Western European countries started two new wars a year for 600 years. That is 1,200 wars in that 550-year period. As of 1945, that went to zero. And there have been no wars between developed countries, the 40 or so with the uh, highest GDP per capita. Well, what about the rest of the world? I've talked about Western Europe. I've talked about great powers. I've talked about developed states. But uh, in a process that uh, I call the new peace, the long peace is beginning to be extended to the rest of the world as well. Now, since 1946, there have been fewer interstate wars, but there have been more civil wars as newly independent states with inept governments fought off insurgent movements, both sides armed, financed, and egged on by the Cold War superpowers. Uh, let me show you that trend in a stacked layer graph from 1946 to 2009 in which the thickness of each layer plots the total number of wars. And in this graph, a war is, count is counted as an armed conflict with a government on at least one side that kills as few as 25 people per year. This first wedge plots the uh, number of colonial wars, a category of war that no longer exists as the European empires gave up their colonies, so that has gone to zero. Here we have the number of interstate wars, wars with a government on each side, and that has been petering out. But here we have the number of civil wars, both the number of pure civil wars and the number of internationalized civil wars, that is civil wars where some foreign power butts in uh, generally on the side of the government defending itself against rebels. The question now, though, is which wars kill more people? The uh, burgeoning number... Oh, just one other trend that I should mention before I go on. The peak in the number of civil wars was 1990, and since the end of the Cold War, even the number of civil wars has been in uh, de decline as well. But nonetheless, the key question is which wars kill more people? The abundant uh, civil wars of recent decades or the interstate wars of earlier decades? This graph provides the answer. These are the uh, interstate wars showing how many people are killed per war per year from the 1950s to the 2000s. These are the internationalized civil wars and the pure civil wars. And as you can see, the interstate wars of the past were far, far more destructive than the civil wars that bulged more recently in terms of how many people they kill per year. If you combine these two figures, 
how many wars were there, how many people were killed per war, and you simply add up the total number of war deaths, you get the following stacked layer graph. Here are, is the rate of death from colonial wars, which, as I've mentioned, has tapered off to zero because it, it, uh, it's a category of war that no longer exists. Here is the rate of death in interstate wars, which has been on a bumpy downward trajectory with spikes corresponding more or less to the uh, Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iran-Iraq War. And here are the civil wars and the internationalized civil wars. And as you can see, the um, overall trend, uh, though very bumpy and spiky, is unmistakably downward. Here we are at the, in the first decade of the 21st century with a thin laminate of uh, war death layers uh, sh sh showing an unprecedentedly low rate of death in war. So the dream of the 1960s folk singers is beginning to come true. The world is almost putting an end to war. Well, what about genocide? It's often said that more people died in the 20th century from genocide than from war. Indeed, the 20th century has been called the age of genocide. Uh, once again, though, this is a claim made without a comparison from any century with any century other than the 20th, and historians of genocide are adamant that the age of genocide is a myth. I'm going to read to you from one of these histories, Frank Chalk and Kurt Jonasson's The History of Genocide, where on page one they note that genocide has been practiced in all regions of the world and during all periods in history. We know that in ancient times, empires have disappeared and that cities were destroyed, but we do not know what happened to the bulk of the populations involved in these events. Their fate was simply too unimportant. When they were mentioned at all, they were usually lumped together with the herds of oxen, sheep, and other livestock. Looking at the available evidence from antiquity, one might develop a hypothesis that most wars at that time were genocidal in character. What are some examples? Well, if you take your uh, Old Testament seriously, there was a genocide every few pages, uh, <laughs> commanded by God, by the way, and in, so that the Amalekites, Amorites, Canaanites, Hivites, Hittites, Jebusites, and so on were all put to the edge of the sword, every last man, woman, and child. Now, I don't take Old Testament history seriously, and archaeologists assure us that there is no evidence for any of these massacres, but they do record a common practice and they record a common attitude, namely that genocide is an excellent thing as long as it doesn't happen to you. More historically plausible are the massacres of the, uh, uh, by the Athenians in Melos, the Romans in Carthage, the Mongol invasions, the Crusades, the European wars of religion, and the colonization of the Americas, Africa, and Australia. When it comes to the 20th century, uh, there have been estimates of the trajectory of genocide, and con contrary to the frequently made assertion that the recent genocides in Bosnia and Rwanda prove that the world has learned nothing from the Holocaust and that genocides are as common as, er as uh, ever, uh, here is the trajectory. And uh, once again, there was a massive bloodletting in the middle decades of the 20th century. But it is not true that, the, that nothing has changed since then. And the trajectory of genocide with some uh, horrifying uh, bumps and spikes has been unmistakably downward, and we are now living in an era with a historically low rate of death in genocide. What were the immediate causes of the long peace and the new peace? Well, three of them were proposed by Immanuel Kant uh, a couple of centuries ago in his essay, Perpetual Peace, in which he argued that democracy, trade, and an international community all ought to be uh, factors that reduce the incentives of countries to go to war with each other. Recently, the political scientists Bruce Russett and John O'Neill have tested Kant's hypothesis in a set of regression analyses, showing that all three increased in the second half of the 20th century, and all of them are statistical predictors of peace. Here we have the uh, number of democracies in the world, which uh, showed a big increase uh, starting in the 1980s. Here is the fate of autocracies, the rise and fall. Uh, not surprisingly, in the mid-1970s, it was widely thought that democracy was a doomed institution. The American politician Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote an essay in which he compared democracy to monarchy as an institution that had its day but on which the sun was setting. Fortunately, he proved to be mistaken, and today there are far more democracies than there are autocracies. This graph shows the 
development of international trade since the late 1890s, and that skyrocketed after World War II. Here we have mem membership in intergovernmental organizations, a kind of international community, which has shown a steady increase, but with a jump after the 1940s. And here we have another kind of international community, peacekeeping forces, uh, such as the United Nations or other uh, ad hoc coalitions, where that has been in a steady increase, especially after the end of the Cold War in 1990. Uh, not just the number of peacekeeping missions, but more importantly, the, uh, how well they were staffed, the number of soldiers with blue helmets that got themselves in between combatants. And contrary to a, a, a widespread stereotype, peacekeepers really do keep the peace. Not 100% of the time, and there have been some conspicuous failures, but on average, peacekeepers keep the peace much better than when the two sides are left to fight it out to the bitter end. The final decline of violence that I discuss in the book I call the rights revolutions. The targeting of violence on smaller scales directed against vulnerable sectors of the population, such as racial minorities, women, children, homosexuals, and animals. The civil rights movement in the United States saw an end to the practice of lynching, which took place at a rate of, in the 19th cent late 19th century, at a rate of 150 per year. By 1950, that had gone down to zero. More recently, the FBI has tracked hate crime murders of blacks. They were never very plentiful to begin with, about five a year when statistics were first recorded, but even that has gone down to one. Non-lethal hate crimes against blacks in the United States, such as intimidation and assault, have been in decline. And the kind of racist attitudes that, uh, that uh, justified and encouraged acts of violence have gone down. Here are the results of two sets of opinion polls that asked white Americans whether they agree with the statement that black and white students should go to separate schools, or whether they would move if a black family moved in next door. In both cases from uh, 1940 to 2000, whoops, I'm sorry about that, the uh, rate has plummeted to the single digits, and uh, it, they, the uh, degree of assent is now in the range of crank opinion, and the questions are no longer included on uh, in opinion polls. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Here we have the number of countries that discriminate against ethnic minorities in their laws and policies, and the number of country, countries with remedial policies designed to aid the former victims of discrimination, what we in the United States call affirmative action policies. And in recent years, more countries have discriminated in favor of uh, oppressed minorities than have discriminated against them. The women's rights movement has seen a 75% decrease in the rate of rape in the United States since statistics were first recorded in the 1970s, a uh, two-thirds decline in uh, domestic violence, that is violence directed against uh, wives and girlfriends, and in the book I have a similar graph from the uh, UK, this represents the United States. The most extreme form of domestic violence, namely axoricide and mariticide, the murder of wives and husbands has gone down, although in this case there has been a steeper decline for male victims than for female victims. The uh, women's movement has been very, very good for husbands. <laughs> the children's rights movement has seen a decline in the use of uh, corporal punishment in schools, uh, what in, in America is called paddling. These are the number of American states with corporal punishment still permitted. Every public opinion poll in the West has shown a decline in the approval of spanking and smacking and other forms of uh, physical discipline of children. The rate of child abuse in the United States has declined since statistics were first measured, both physical abuse and sexual abuse. And the victimization of children in uh, schools from fights and non-fatal crimes has been in decline. The gay rights movement has seen an increase in the number of states that have decriminalized homosexuality, both the number of nation states across the world and the number of American states, which now stands at 100%. There's been a decline in every Western country in anti-gay attitudes, such as whether homosexuality is morally wrong, whether it should be uh, uh, criminalized, and whether gay people should be denied equal opportunity. And there's been a decline in uh, hate crime uh, intimidations of gay people since statistics were measured. The animal rights movement has seen a decrease in hunting, an increase in vegetarianism, both in the UK and the US, 
and a sharp decrease in the number of motion pictures in which animals were harmed. <laughs> well, this raises the question of why violence has declined over so many scales of time and magnitude. One possibility is that human nature has changed and that our taste for violence has literally been bred out of us. Well, I consider this to be uh, unlikely for a number of reasons. For one is violence is still quite prevalent in our uh, toddlers who uh, kick, bite, and hit each other, uh, and in our little boys who play fight uh, all over the world. People still take tremendous enjoyment in watching violence staged for their uh, entertainment, such as murder mysteries, Greek tragedies, Shakespearean dramas, video games, hockey, and movies starring a certain ex-governor of California. <laughs> and we still seem to be prone to homicidal fantasies. Several uh, evolutionary psychologists have asked people the question, have you ever fantasized about killing someone you don't like? say, someone who's stolen your boyfriend or girlfriend, or someone who's humiliated you in public. And the results are that about 15% of women and a third of men frequently fantasize about killing people they don't like. And more than 60% of women and uh, three quarters of men at least occasionally fantasize about killing people they don't like. And the rest of them are lying. <laughs> A more likely possibility is that human nature is extraordinarily complex and has always comprised inclinations toward violence and inclinations that counteract them, what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, and that historical circumstances have increasingly favored our peaceable inclinations. Well, what are some of these evolved motives for violence? They include pure, raw exploitation, the elimination of a person that just happens to be an obstacle on the path to something that you want, resulting in rape, plunder, conquest, and the elimination of rivals. Very different is the drive for dominance, the urge among individuals to become uh, alpha male, and a corresponding uh, drive among groups for ethnic, racial, national, or religious supremacy. Still another motive is revenge, the kind of moralistic violence that deems it uh, acceptable, indeed mandatory, to punish someone who has uh, done a wrong, resulting in vendettas, rough justice, and cruel punishments. And then there's ideology, the proliferation of a belief system throughout a community that can license large outlays of violence, such as militant religions, nationalism, Nazism, and communism, all idealistic movements which paradoxically can invite violence by their positing of a utopia, that is, a world that will be infinitely good forever. The reason that this notion can be so toxic is uh, if you do a cost-benefit analysis, then uh, if your belief system holds out the promise of a world that will be infinitely good forever, well, you can be expend as much violence as you want in pursuit of that world, and you're always ahead of the game. The benefits outweigh the costs. Also, imagine that there are people who learn about your vision of a perfect world, but nonetheless just don't get with the program and uh, might even stand in your way of bringing about a perfect world. Uh, that is a world that is infinitely good forever. Uh, how evil are they? Well, you do the math. They are arbitrarily evil and hence deserving in the minds of these idealists of arbitrary punishment. What do, what do we have on the other side to oppose these uh, inner demons? What are the better angels of our nature? There's self-control, the ability to anticipate the consequences of behavior and inhibit violent impulses. Uh, presumably, out of those 75% of men who uh, fantasize about killing people they don't like, a tiny, tiny fraction actually do kill people they don't like. That gap, presumably, is a gift of the faculty of self-control. There's empathy, the ability to feel others' pain. There's the moral sense, a set of intuitions, some of which, like tribalism, authority, and puritanism, can actually increase violence, but at least one of which, the sense of fairness, can decrease it. And then there's reason, the cognitive faculties that allow us to engage in objective, detached analysis. Well, given this inventory of motives that pull us in various directions, which historical developments bring out our better angels and stay our hands before they can cause actual bloodshed? One possibility is that Hobbes got it right when he called for a leviathan, a state and 
judicial system with a monopoly on violence because a Leviathan can eliminate the incentives for exploitative attack by uh, punishing aggressors and therefore canceling out their anticipated gain. That can reduce tensions all around because not only is the Leviathan deterring you, but you know that it's deterring your enemies. And so you don't have to maintain a uh, belligerent stance of uh, deterrence, a uh, implacable drive for vengeance, or a temptation of preemptive attack. The Leviathan also, uh, by allowing people to outsource their vengeance to a disinterested third party, it circumvents the self-serving biases that our species is prone to. Everyone always believes <coughs> that their opponent's attacks <coughs> excuse me, are unprovoked aggression, whereas their own attacks are justified retaliation. When you have two sides both intoxicated by these self-serving uh, illusions, you can get uh, cycles of revenge, which a third party, uh, in principle, can uh, tamp down. Some historical evidence that Leviathan is indeed a uh, pacifying force comes from the first two developments that I mentioned in this talk, namely the pacifying and civilizing effects of states, by the fact that you can watch this movie run in reverse when you see government retreat, leaving behind zones of anarchy, such as the American Wild West, failed states, collapsed empires and mafias and street gangs that deal in contraband and hence cannot avail themselves of the dispute resolution process of the state. If someone's cheated you in a drug deal, it's not as if you can file a lawsuit. Or if someone gets threatening, it's not as if you can call the police. And so uh, dealers in contraband have to protect their interests with the credible threat of violence. The second uh, possibility is the concept of gentle commerce according to which plunder is a zero-sum game. The uh, plunderer's gain is the victim's loss, but trade is a positive-sum game, one in which everybody wins. And as improving technology allows the trade of goods and ideas over longer distances, among larger groups of people, and at lower cost, more and more of the world becomes more valuable uh, alive than dead. Much has been written about the uh, impending rivalry of the United States and China for world supremacy. Uh, still, I think it's unlikely that the two countries will go to war. For one thing, they make too much of our stuff. For the other thing, we, uh, we owe them too much money. <laughs> Some historical evidence comes from statistical analyses that show that countries with open economies and greater reliance on international trade, holding all things constant, get embroiled in fewer wars, are riven by fewer civil wars and host fewer genocides. A third possibility has been called the expanding circle by the philosopher Peter Singer, but the idea was first stated by Charles Darwin in The Descent of Man, namely that evolution bequeathed us with a sense of empathy. Unfortunately, by default, we apply it only to a narrow circle of close friends, uh, close family, and uh, cute little warm fuzzy things. But that over the course of history, the circle has expanded to embrace the village, the clan, the tribe, the nation, other races, both sexes, children, and if Singer has his way, other species. This just begs the question of what expanded the circle. And it's plausible that the technologies of cosmopolitanism, the mixing of ideas and people, had a role. That the, uh, namely the consumption of history, literature, and journalism, and opportunities for travel. And a number of experiments have shown that if you have a person adopt the perspective of a real or fictitious person by reading or listening to their words, the subject becomes more sympathetic both to that individual and to the category that that individual represents. Some historical evidence was that in the humanitarian revolution of the 17th and 18th century, uh, it was preceded by the so-called Republic of Letters, the widespread dissemination of printed material. The second half of the 20th century, which saw the long peace and the rights revolutions, occurred in the so-called uh, electronic global village. And though it's too early to tell, it's if the color revolutions in Arab Spring have a happy ending, uh, certainly they were fostered by the internet and social media. Finally, there's the escalator of reason, the possibility that the huge expansion of literacy, public discourse, and education have encouraged people to think more abstractly and more universally. They rise above their parochial vantage point. It's 
They're then harder to privilege your own interests over others. It encourages people to replace a morality based on tribalism, authority, and puritanism with a morality based on fairness and universal rules. People step back and they recognize the futility of cycles of violence and increasingly see violence as a problem to be solved rather than as a contest to be won. Some historical evidence includes the fact that abstract reasoning abilities, as measured by IQ tests, believe it or not, increased over the course of the 20th century, the so-called Flynn effect, whereby IQ uh, scores increased by three points a year uh, throughout the 20th century. This graph shows it from uh, the late 1940s to the present. Other studies have shown that people and societies with higher levels of education and measured intelligence, holding all else constant, commit fewer violent crimes, cooperate more in experimental games, have more classically liberal attitudes, such as opposition to racism and sexism, and are more receptive to democracy. Uh, the final question that I'll raise is why all of these forces seem to be pushing in the same direction. And my best guess is that violence is a social dilemma. Uh, violent, aggression is always tempting to an aggressor for the uh, possibilities of exploitation, but of course ruinous to a, a victim. And in the long run, since anyone can be a, an aggressor or a victim, all parties would be better off if somehow everyone could agree to abjure violence simultaneously. The human dilemma is how to get the other guy to renounce violence at the same time as you do, because if you are a unilateral pacifist and lay down your arms, then you'll just be a sitting duck to the guy who hasn't done it yet. One can well imagine that over the course of history, human experience and human ingenuity have gradually chipped away at this problem, just like we have dealt with other scourges of nature, such as pestilence and hunger. And the four pacifying forces that I mentioned have all worked to increase the material, emotional, and cognitive incentives of all parties to avoid violence simultaneously. Well, whatever the causes are of the decline of violence, I think uh, they ha it has implications that are profound. For one thing, it calls for a reorientation of our efforts toward violence reduction from a moralistic mindset to an empirical mindset. That is, instead of lamenting why is there war, perhaps we should ask why is there peace? Instead of asking what are we doing wrong, perhaps we should ask what have we been doing right? Because we have been doing something right, and it sure would be good to find out what exactly it is. Also, I think the decline of violence calls for a reassessment of modernity, of the erosion of family, tribe, uh, tradition, and religion, by the forces of individualism, cosmopolitanism, reason, and science. Now, everyone acknowledges the gifts of modernity, the fact that we leave longer and lead longer and healthier lives, that there's less ignorance and superstition, that we have richer experiences, but there's always been a current of nostalgia and romanticism that has had misgivings about modernity, often questioning the price. Is it worth it if we have to live with the fear of terrorism, genocide, world wars, and nuclear weapons? However, despite impressions, the long-term trend, though halting and incomplete, is that violence of all kinds is decreasing, and I believe that calls for a rehabilitation of the concept of modernity and progress. And it's a cause for gratitude for the institutions of civilization and enlightenment that have made it possible. Thank you very much. a really outstanding lecture. It was thoroughly enjoyable, very informative. And uh, now to questions from the audience. Um, I'll be taking questions in groups of three. And uh, could you please be sure to keep your question brief and be sure to ask a question and not make a statement or uh, deliver your own lecture. And uh, wait till the roving microphone comes to you. And Tell us your name and where you're from, unless you really don't want to. Okay, one over there, and one at the back there, and 
one here. So in that order, please. Just a question, sorry, Ken Rump from Much Fought Over Berwick on Tweed. Um, uh, just a question, when you compared pre-state societies and the death rate, which presumably don't know exactly why people died violent deaths, to, you, you compared it, it seemed to me, to wars. If we added in murders and so on, would that change things? Uh, from the, you mean Let's put the three together. Oh, I see, okay, yes. Okay. If you could get the mics to the other people in... Ready. Yes, you've got yours. Good. Hi, I'm Diana Fleischman, and I'm from America, as you can tell from my accent. Um, I was interested because you said there's vegetarianism increased and that we've lost our taste for seeing animals harmed. But in the United States, you know, since 1965, there's only been one humane slaughter act, and certainly animals, even if they're humanely slaughtered in the states, can still be castrated without anesthesia. So there's not really, uh, you know, the rate of eating animals is increasing drastically, and certainly practices involving intensive animal farming have become less humane over time. So I would be wondering you know, how you would explain that. Uh, Adrian Sack, I'm a screenwriter and uh, inventor. Um, I, I'm interested, uh, just as a pessimist, all this optimism makes me queasy. And so uh, I'm, I'm just interested, just to phrase a simple question, uh, the gradual downward, if stochastic drop of, of violence uh, it seems should be set against the context of our uh, massively evolving ability to uh, cause destruction. We've gone from the, uh, uh, let's say, black powder cannon to uh, you know, uh, multiple stage hydrogen bomb in 40 or 50 years. Uh, just in that context, um, what's the worst case scenario you see, you see, even in the light of your very convincing case, to the contrary? Okay. <clears throat> so let me start with the uh, question about the estimates of rate of death from uh, wars versus homicides, both uh, pre-state and uh, uh, modern. The figures that I cited for rates of death in uh, the um, uh, recent hunter-gatherer societies from ethnographers were rates of death in uh, raiding and feuding. So even though in small societies often uh, it's hard to draw a line between homicides, homicide and war, the categories are a little less distinct, those figures were all from um, raids and feuds. So they weren't just uh, two people within a village, uh, one of them killing the other, but involved coalitional killing of some kind. For the uh, forensic archaeology, the prehistoric boneyards, there we don't know in every case, although many of the finds were of uh, people who had all been killed at the same time and, uh, and in the same way, suggesting that they were involved in organized violence rather than one-on-one -on -one homicides. The figures that I showed for the modern states were all for death in warfare, and they were not from death in uh, homicides. Uh, and in fact, there's, in the book I have a statistical discussion of the, the rather subtle issue of what kills more people, wars or homicides. And the answer seems to be that uh, the two things that kill the most people are world wars and homicides. That is the extreme, the very, very rare and very, very destructive events and the very, very common events, each of which has a death toll of exactly one. Uh, so if you, all the other wars in between are dwarfed by the number of homicides. Uh, and uh, indeed, there would have been a higher rate of death in warfare, rate of death through violence for modern societies if I threw in the homicides. Even there, in the book, I have some estimates that, that just for the, uh, to really stacked against against modernity, I throw in the homicides as well. And still, it's, uh, the, uh, the uh, rate for pre-state, non-state societies is uh, many times a multiple of the rate of violent death, even if you throw in the homicides. Interestingly, in the um, hunter-gatherer societies that rarely go to war, uh, they, ethnographers have uh, recorded rates of homicide, and they're in the neighborhood of the worst American cities in the worst American decades, that is, uh, in the, the range of 50 per uh, 100,000 per year. The other uh, question was on the treatment of animals, and I do have a section in the book on the treatment of animals. It's certainly not true that cruel treatment of animals in uh, farms and factories is a phenomenon of the 20th century, that uh, if you look at histories of the treatment of animals, there were um, callous, uh, almost cruel practices such as tenderizing the meat of a, uh, uh, of a of swine while they were still alive by beating them to death, uh, nailing the feet of poultry to the floor, uh, bringing them up in uh, 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 close confinement in uh, pitch black barns because of various uh, theories that this would make the meat more palatable, skinning animals alive, all kinds of horrible things that go way back. 
Uh, it is true that in the in recent decades there's been an increase in uh, numbers of animals that have been brought into being and have lived, un lived unhappy lives. Uh, although I, I think not from an increase in callousness or cruelty, but from a change in uh, in, in two attitudes. One of them is that. Uh, an increase in the availability of meat, so that uh, meat is, uh, we're living in an unusual era in which poor people can eat meat whenever they want, uh, as opposed to it being a, a luxury of the rich. And uh, multiplying this calamity for animals is the fact that starting in the 1970s, people got the idea that white meat was healthier than red meat. And uh, no one did the math to realize that it takes 200 chickens to provide the same amount of meat as one cow. So as people's tastes shift from red to white meat, 200 times more animals, more consciousnesses had to be brought into being. And so these two factors shot up the number of uh, animals that were uh, callously treated. Um, and by one measure, that is an increase in violence, although uh, I would argue that it's not because people got more callous. Quite the contrary, at least since the 1960s, the um, awareness in the, w the West of animals' interests has shot up. And actually, in the United States, there have been a number of state-level measures, many of them passed by plebiscites that have mandated uh, more humane treatment of uh, animals in farms. Certainly as a scientist, I can attest to the fact that the treatment of animals in laboratories has undergone a uh, huge revolution in the, in the United States. And uh, in my own lifetime, I've seen many kinds of uh, callous treatment of animals that are now completely unthinkable in, uh, in laboratories. So this is a... Um, a case where you're right by the numbers, there's been an increase by attitudes. I, uh, I think that there's been, an, in fact, an increase in concern. And I think fairly predictably, at least in, um, in, in uh, the West, there's going to be an increase in laws and statutes that protect the interests of uh, animals. Uh, finally, what's the worst case scenario? Well, the worst case scenario is um, uh, almost by definition, you can go as high as you want. Uh, the plausible worst-case scenario, of course, was global thermonuclear war between the two uh, Cold War superpowers. That is the strange love uh, scenario or uh, fail-safe scenario in which all of the major cities of the West would be rendered radioactive craters. And perhaps if that isn't bad enough, there was the nuclear winter scenario where so much debris was released into the atmosphere that the sun was blacked out crops fail, and we, the, the uh, species would go the way of the dinosaurs. So I think, uh, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen, uh, because it's just uh, uh, extremely unlikely that, that uh, Russia and the United States or any two powers would, would have a global war of, uh, of uh, that uh, magnitude. The worst thing could happen, nuclear terrorism, that could be pretty ugly, although we, I discussed nuclear terrorism in the book, and um, not just... Uh, what people tend to do is they play out scenarios in their imagination. Uh, what's more pertinent is, uh, to the best that we can estimate it, is this how likely is this scenario? And I've, I read uh, in this literature, and I think the answer is not that likely. The idea of the loose nukes in the, nu in the nuclear bazaar, the nuke that, that anyone could put together in their garage, is uh, much less likely. Uh, in fact, it's extraordinarily unlikely. There are... Um, rogue states uh, or irresponsible states. It's not beyond the realm of imagination that India and Pakistan would have a nuclear war. I doubt it. It's not beyond the realm of imagination that Ahmadinejad will follow through on his promise to wipe Israel off the map and nuke Tel Aviv. Again, I doubt it. And I discuss these scenarios in the book. Uh, there, are, there is the uh, scenario in which climate change brings about uh, Mad Max and the entire world uh, is in a Hobbesian war over dwindling uh, resources. I doubt that too, which is not to doubt the uh, high probability that climate change is going to lead to a lot of uh, misery and waste, but it won't necessarily lead to violence. That the connection between resource competition and, and war is much less uh, tight than most people imagine. Most wars are not fought, fought over resource conflicts, uh, but over conquest, glory, ideology, rectifying ancient wrongs, bringing about perfect justice, and so on. And a lot of uh, resource shortages can lead to a lot of misery without leading to war. A number of statistical surveys have tried to measure uh, resource stress at time one with likelihood of civil war at time two. And a number of the studies find, find uh, uh, no correlation. 
So it's possible. Uh, so one can imagine all kinds of things, but uh, I don't think any of them is inevitable. I really am very sorry, but I'm afraid we can't take any more questions. I'm very oh. sorry about that. Um, but Steve has to go off to speak to the nation on Newsnight later. But before that, he will be here signing books outside, and you can buy books, and Steve will be signing those, but he has to go uh, soon after that. And there will be, we hope, a podcast of this event on the LSE website. And meanwhile, the Twitter hashtag is LSE Violence. Thank you very much to everyone in the audience for coming to this evening and for being so very patient and supportive. We very much appreciate that. And a huge thank you.